Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. My name is David Markowski. I'm the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations. This is the second season of the podcast. Thank you for sticking with us if you were with us last season. And if you're new, thank you for joining us. In this season, we will explore Israeli and Arab leaders who helped shape Arab-Israeli relations, focusing on one key moment that illuminates their decision-making. It is remarkable timing that just as we're beginning our new season, the news comes across that Israel and the United Arab Emirates have agreed to normalize their relations and sign a peace treaty. This will be the third treaty that Israel has had with an Arab country, first with Egypt, then with Jordan, and now with the United Arab Emirates. And frankly, it reflects a new evolving regional reality that Israel and Arabs do not find themselves as enemies, and they have a strategic convergence against Iran. So they have found themselves suddenly, instead of being adversaries, to be more like partners. And a lot of this is going on under the table, security cooperation, this idea of also technology as the Arab states think about how to digitize their economy and not be so focused on oil. So what we now have with the treaty is what used to be under the table, suddenly the table is disappearing. This could be a seismic event bringing together two of the most technologically focused countries in the Middle East. The question is now, will there be follow-on agreements with other Gulf states? Frankly, also, it's a three-way deal because these Gulf states believe that they could get certain benefits from the United States at the same time of making peace with Israel. I think this is going to be a win-win-win for Israel, for the Arab states, and the United States. Now, the Palestinians could see this as an opportunity where you could bring all the resources of the Emirates to restart Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Sadly, in the short term, they see it more as a threat, not as a bridge, but as a bypass road around them. So we'll need to see how this plays out. But there's a lot of prospects here. This new season of the podcast is going to focus on larger-than-life leaders who made historic decisions that changed the trajectory of their countries. And often it's in the area of peacemaking. It's hard to imagine that at a time that the Arab world, at the start of Israel's existence, was dead set against the establishment of a Jewish state, suddenly that these kinds of peace treaties would have even been imaginable. Let's return to history. Let's return to Israel's iconic first leader, David Ben-Gurion. He had to make a historic decision as well. The resolution of the Duck Committee for Palestine was adopted by 33 votes, 13 against, 10 abstentions. On November 29, 1947, the United Nations voted to partition Palestine into a Jewish and an Arab state. Six months later, on May 14, 1948, the British were scheduled to pull out their last troops, bringing an end to the British mandate in Palestine. In the months between these two events, Contentious debates divided the leadership of the Yishuv, or the Jewish community in Palestine. The question on the table was existential, to immediately declare a state and risk invasion by better-armed Arab states, 
or accept an international ceasefire, potentially throwing away any chance of declaring the Jewish state at the center of these debates was David Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion, Israel's founding father, immigrated from Poland to Palestine in 1906. Dedicated towards building and leading the Yishuv, Ben-Gurion worked as a journalist, a union leader, and eventually as head of the de facto state-in-waiting, the Jewish agency, before becoming prime minister. Ben-Gurion hoped Zionism could forestall the looming catastrophe facing the European Jews under Adolf Hitler. Ben-Gurion's long-held belief was that stateless Jews were defenseless Jews, and this was confirmed with the rise of Hitler. Ben-Gurion was crushed that Zionism could not win British support for statehood in the 1930s. Because the Jewish state didn't exist, Ben-Gurion believed millions died and hundreds of thousands were stuck in displaced persons camp right after the war. But coming to a consensus regarding statehood was anything but easy. In theory, the November 1947 UN partition plan for an Arab and Jewish state combined with the British decision to end the mandate in mid-May 1948 should have set the stage for transition. Yet the Arab states bitterly denounced partition. Intercommunal fighting broke out at the end of 1947 between local Palestinians and Zionist Jews. Senior U.S. officials predicted a bloody war between a nascent Jewish state and the Arab world. The U.S. was determined to remain neutral, wanting to avoid bloodshed and keep the Arab world on America's side during the Cold War and keep pumping oil during the post-World War II recovery of Europe. U.S. Secretary of State George Marshall pressed hard for an international trusteeship to forestall the creation of a new Jewish state, starting with a three-month ceasefire. On May 12, 1948, the Zionist Provisional Government gathered for a marathon 14-hour meeting to debate the issue of statehood. I'm delighted to be joined by one of Israel's leading historians and experts when it comes to David Ben-Gurion, Professor Anita Shapira. This subject interests me greatly, as I actually wrote a chapter on Ben-Gurion in my new book with Dennis Ross called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. Welcome, Professor Shapira. Thank you. The stakes could not have been higher. The British were leaving at midnight on May 15th, and it was clear that war with the Arab world would commence if the Zionists declared a state. So let's go over, if we can, some of the huge challenges. First, the American angle. Ben-Gurion sent Moshe Sharet to hold talks with American Secretary of State George Marshall in Washington on the days before May 15th. So an obvious question is, why send Sharet to the United States? Why was the U.S. backing so important to the Zionists? I think that it was impossible to imagine a Jewish state created in Palestine without the tacit support of the United States. By the way, the partition resolution in November 1947 would not have come to light had it not been for the support of the United States. So the United States was the leading power in the world at that time. How can a Jewish state coming to being against the wishes of this leading power. So Charette went to 
check the ground. How much was the United States opposed to the declaration? Now, we have to remember that until April 1948, a month before, the United States did support partition and eventually a declaration of statehood. What happened was a disagreement between the president who supported the Jews and the State Department that objected because of political reasons. So Charette went to Washington to try and see what is the depth of American objection. Would America object forcefully or would advise us to avoid a declaration? Now, he also went to see what is the meaning of this three months truce and postponement in the declaration. What does it mean? Would after that the Americans be ready to support a declaration of independence? He came back with the feeling that Americans would not support partition even after the three months. So what's the point? Why should the Jews in Palestine agree to postpone? As you say correctly, these are two separate things, the issue of international trusteeship and a three-month ceasefire. Charette might have been willing to trade maybe a ceasefire if he knew that Marshall was not going to do the trusteeship. He says to Marshall, we haven't come this far for a trusteeship. According to some of the biographers on Ben-Gurion, and I don't know if it's accurate, and I defer to you as kind of the leading authority on Ben-Gurion, some of the writers said that when he briefed Ben-Gurion on his meetings with Marshall, Charette said to Ben-Gurion, I think he's right, meaning we should postpone, at least on the issue of a ceasefire. And that Ben-Gurion said, give the full report to everybody tomorrow. Tomorrow's the big meeting. But don't add, I think he's right. The four words, I think he is right, yes. This is a very well-known version of what happened. This is the version of Ben-Gurion, because Charette did not agree to this version. Charette was hesitant regarding the declaration, but eventually he supported Ben-Gurion. So he did not want it publicized that he was hesitant. If the comments were six to four, then that means Charette was decisive in a certain way. Ben-Gurion had a big impact. I think it's true, but I think that there was a vote. What is our source regarding the vote? The source is the then secretary of the provisional government, Ze'ev Shelf, who was later on also the secretary of Israeli government. Now, Ze'ev Shelf published his memoir called Three Days, the days between May 12 to May 15. And in his memoir, he tells the story of the vote. Now, all the protagonists were still alive. Had it not taken place, I am sure that somebody would have challenged him. The fact that nobody challenged the report of 
sheriff means that it can be that it was not a formal vote taking. Maybe it was a roll call, trying the area, but not a formal one. Fascinating. Another big event that happened at the time was Golda Meir coming back from Jordan after meeting King Abdullah. This was her second meeting with the king in a half a year. In her autobiography, she talks about writing a note to Ben-Gurion at the start of the meeting, you know, saying there will be war, meaning, you know, that the talks failed. And I was just wondering if you could give us some sense of the, the meeting of Golda Meir with Abdullah and how it also impacted that key decision. I heard Golda Meir tell the story on the eve of Israeli Independence Day in 1967, three weeks before the Six-Day War. She appeared in a panel. She was not in a formal role at that time. She was only the secretary of MAPAI. She was charming. And she told the story how she went dressed up as an Arab with Eliyahu Sasson and how the king received her very, very somber, very, very earnest. And at their previous meeting, they actually agreed on him if he wants to annex the part of Palestine designed for the Palestinians the Israelis would not object to it. And he would be neutral in a case of war. Now, we have to remember that the Arab Legion, the army of Transjordan, this was the strongest Arab army in general, led by British officers. So it was very important for Israelis to keep him neutral. Now, he said to Golda, I promised you, yes, but I have to go back on my word because I cannot stand against public opinion. There is a terrible pressure from below to participate in the war, especially after the Diriasin massacre and the very strong propaganda that took place after that. So he said to Golda, I cannot resist. I am only one of five states. I have to join them. So she said, look, in war, like in a war, we will beat you and you will lose territory. And he said, we'll meet after the war. And that was that. Now, we have to remember also that he was for a long time the most moderate of Arab leaders, very against the Mufti of Jerusalem and very lenient as far as Zionism went. So it was a great disappointment, especially because they had such a strong army that I would say held sway over Jerusalem. So now during the meeting itself on May 12th, they get word about an attack on Gush Etzion. And it must have been devastating. You've already got one piece of bad news that George Marshall 
is not committing that in return for a ceasefire, he'll give up on trusteeship. The bad news, number one. Bad news, number two, Golda Meir has just come back from uh, seeing King Abdullah, and he's saying that he is joining the war and he cannot keep to this idea of staying out in return for the land. And then bad news number three, this thing happens at Kvaratzion, and all this bad news comes together. I'm just wondering how, how it impacts the participants in the room. I wanted to add something. Sure. When speaking about George Marshall, he said to Charette, don't be intoxicated by generals winning the wars. You are going to lose, and we are not going to bail you out. So he actually threatened the Jews with defeat and the Americans keeping neutral in case of a defeat. And this was very, very alarming. Now, add to that the fact that the Arab Legion already joined the fighting in Gush Etzion, the fact that in the Gush Etzion we had a massacre of the defenders after they surrendered by Arab militias, all this, they heard the radio, the last missions from Gush Etzion during the meeting, it was terrible. But Ben-Gurion said, yes, Gush Etzion fell, but this does not mean that we won't have a Jewish state. To get back to what you said about Marshall, there's no doubt that by the U.S. being neutral on one hand, but yet, as you pointed out, the British were funding the Arab Legion and leading it. Mr. Glove, the Zionists didn't see it as an even battlefield in this regard. You've got the fourth piece I want to ask you about, which is Galili and uh, Yisrael Galili and Yigal Yadin, the two generals who clearly seem like they would like this ceasefire. No, 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 no. They came straight from the field. The fact was that during the last seven months, there was a war going on between the Jews and the Palestinians. And the Palestinians were beaten. They were defeated. But the war went on all the time. And the army, or I would say it's partially militia, partially army, it's still not a formal army because there was no state. They were getting ready for the invasion that was supposed to take place the day after the British evacuate, which was on May 14. So they were put the question by the politicians, what are our chances in a war against the Arab states, against Arab regular army, not the Palestinian militia? And it was a very difficult moment because on the one hand, they understood the stakes. On the other hand, they did not want to give a wrong impression. So Yadin said, eh, 50-50 chance. I thought that when they were pushed on the 50-50 comment by one of the politicians, 
Yadin or Galili said, well, actually, you know, the three months would give us more time. Many of our people up to maybe 40% are not armed, are, are soldiers. You know, he said 50-50 up front, but then when pushed, he kind of seemed to say it was less than 50-50. Yes, but Galili softened his words. And the general impression was that it's a chance but I would say they did not want to commit themselves. Yeah. So Ben-Gurion is hearing all these bad news and not this fantastic, enthusiastic, you know, come on, we could do this tomorrow. But Ben-Gurion is very focused on being decisive. Say something else about Ben-Gurion, his ability always to be on one hand, both analytical, but unambiguous. Ben-Gurion learned from Churchill. In one of his letters to his wife from London during the Blitz, he wrote, history is not made by leaders. It is made by the masses. But in crucial moments, a bold, courageous, and wise leader makes the difference between defeat and victory. Now, he meant Churchill, but the same Thing applies to him at this moment. He was willing to take a calculated risk. Now, he knew the risks. It's not that he was not afraid. Golda said he was afraid, but this did not prevent him from doing what he thought right. Now, he explained very clearly to those assembled that a ceasefire would work to the disadvantage of the Jewish state. And that this moment is the moment now or never, because what's happening is that the British are evacuating the country on May 14, and there is no such thing as a vacuum. If there is a vacuum, who will rule the country. Now, he knew very well that the future Israeli public supported him very, very strongly. And the Jewish street in Palestine was booming with enthusiasm for the declaration of statehood. So he knew that he had the support, a very broad support, even though the people who were assembled to decide with him were very, very cautious. Now, I want to tell you a story regarding the 4 to 9 vote. I gave a presentation a few years ago in London on the eve of Israeli Independence Day, and I told the story of that day on May 12th. The moderator asked me the question, what would Ben-Gurion do had the vote gone the other way? And I answered off the cuff, he would have made them change their mind. Now, the audience burst laughing, but I was completely serious. He would not have left that room without a decision regarding independence. So we have to understand Ben-Gurion. He was, on the one hand, using all the 
reasoning possible. But at the end, he brought to bear his personality, his conviction, his strength. And people followed him because people in such moments, they look for leadership. And he had this quality. That's fantastic. I mean, I think part of his leadership to me seemed that he was always able to weigh what are the risks of action versus what are the risks of inaction? And what are the implications of not acting? Who fills the vacuum, as you said correctly, after the British leave and you don't declare a state? If you cannot justify to your people a state when the British are leaving, then how can you ever justify it? So I completely agree with you about his gravitas, his sense of leadership, that he was able to make clear what are the stakes. And if Charette was hesitant the night before, and maybe he turned out to be the decisive vote, then that question you were asked in London was not theoretical. It seemed to me that Ben-Gurion's gravitas was very persuasive at one of the most decisive moments of Jewish history in 2,000 years. That's right. That's right. Clear up for us, if you can, the discussion at the cabinet about the issue of what borders to accept and the role of uh, referring to God in the Declaration of Independence. First of all, they had to read the Declaration of Independence. So the first one who wrote it down was Charette. And Charette was very formal Every sentence started with, whereas, whereas, whereas. (laughs) Now, Ben-Gurion took this draft and crossed out all the whereas and made out of it a historical document, not a legal one. And the result was that the first part of it dealt with Jewish history and the connection with the land. And the second part was describing the policy of the state as a democratic, liberal, Jewish state. Now, there was a question by one of the participants, why don't you mention borders in the declaration? So Ben-Gurion answered, there is no need to declare borders. The Declaration of Independence of the United States does not mention borders as well. We don't know what the borders are going to be. If we win and we succeed, maybe we go beyond the borders of the UN. We should not commit ourselves at this stage to any kind of borders. The other question was, everybody was supposed to sign the declaration which means both religious and super atheists. How do you make good for both sides? So Ben-Gurion wrote Tzur Israel Vegoalo, which means the rock of Israel and its redeemer. Now, the expression talked about God, but by eliminating the redeemer, you could mean the strength of Israel. So in this way, you could uh, compromise between the religious and the secularists. So you look at Ben-Gurion's diary after he 
He started apparently a new diary when he declared the state. And he said now that the fate of the state is in the hands of the security forces. It's hard, you know, to get into somebody's head. And we, we could see his diaries. We probably dug so deep you could to see who people he talked to. Did he allow himself any sense of exultation, satisfaction at this historic moment that he had spent decades trying to reach? Ben-Gurion was a very restrained person. He did not project deep feelings, even though he had them. So he did not say anything apart from what he wrote. Jewish state was declared its fate in the hands of the security forces. But on that day, he also wrote in his diary, everybody is rejoicing and I feel again like a mourner among the rejoicers. Everybody was dancing, everybody was singing, and he felt like a mourner because he knew what the prize is going to be. Now, there is a very nice story. After the everything was finished and they went home, after singing Atikva and saying, after everything, Ben-Gurion went home and Golda Meir and another member of the cabinet thought that it would be nice to bring Ben-Gurion, the man who gave birth to the state, to bring him flowers. So they went to Ben-Gurion's home and knocked on the door with a bouquet of flowers. And Ben-Gurion opened the door and he saw that they brought him flowers and he was shy. He did not know how to react. He could have cried, but he did not cry. But he behaved as if he does not deserve this kind of honor. When did he allow himself to be somewhat emotional? There is a talking about the Holocaust. There's a scene of him meeting, going to the TP camp. Yes. And he meets with the Holocaust survivors. And I think his name is Judah Nadich, is the chaplain who writes in his diary. And he's speaking to them in Yiddish, I believe. That's right. He started by saying, Brothers and sisters. And he broke and cried. And everybody in the hall cried with him. It was such an emotional breakdown. All the emotion that he kept inside, that he never gave expression, broke out at this moment. Because this was someone who dedicated his life to the idea of a Jewish state. And he saw like a race between Zionism in the 30s We have to get there before the Nazis implement their horror. He didn't know six million, of course, and he couldn't think of gas chambers, but he kept saying the ground is burning and didn't turn out this way. The British didn't allow it. So I think for him to confront these people directly, it's got to be a a moment of uncontrolled uh, emotion. He's meeting them face to face. All the pain that was hidden inside him came out at that meeting. It is uh, remarkable. You know, Israel may have had many founders, but he stood above them all. And he was had a laser focus, a relentless focus 
on building a state. And, you know, Israel had many dramatic decisions, but there could be no more dramatic decision than this one, the founding the state itself. And as you point out, that it was the gift of history that the Zionists had David Ben-Gurion at that moment. We have to remember that Ben-Gurion's decision to go to war and to send the young people to their death was the first such decision that a Jewish authority took since the time of Bar Kokhba. And this was also just three years after the end of the war and the Holocaust. What an enormous chance, what an enormous courage, what an enormous risk. So here we are. This was the moment that made the difference, that really made the difference. And that's how Jews all over the world accepted it. With great enthusiasm, even though they knew the sacrifices that have to be made. Well, Anita, you have certainly helped us understand the depths of that decision greatly. We're just so fortunate to have you, and we only wish you much strength for 120 years to keep going, to keep educating us. I just want to say thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. David Ben-Gurion was a complex, strong-willed leader who was dealing with a very daunting task. He faced internal division, external threats, and he faced the prospects of personal failure. He took the risk of declaring the state immediately, despite the threat of invasion and the lack of support from American allies. When the time came for him to make a decision, it became the most consequential decision point in Israeli history. Thank you all very much for listening. Please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review Decision Points. And please tell your friends. I've also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross on four key Israeli leaders called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Basha Rosenbaum, researcher, Scott Boxer, Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, and Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive. Thank you all. <music>